You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning again. We're looking at Malachi. We have been looking at Malachi for uh, the past three Sundays. Malachi can be outlined according to six uh, six debates or six arguments, or if you're feeling scholarly, six disputations with God. And so we're looking at debate number four this morning, and it appears in Malachi chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 17, rather shorter uh, passage uh, this morning than last week. Uh, little theologians, I'd like for you to draw a picture of a courtroom. I realize that uh, perhaps very, very few of you have been in a courtroom But if you could draw a picture of a courtroom as best you can, I'll explain a little bit later uh, why. But Malachi chapter 2, beginning at verse uh, 17, will continue right into the beginning of uh, Malachi uh, chapter 3. So 2.17 to 3.5 is where we are. Everyone have a Bible? If you don't have a Bible, wave your hand. We can get a Bible to you. Looking at Malachi, the last, uh, last book of the Old Testament. Let's, uh, let's do this, shall we? Let's pray together, and then I will read the passage for us. Please pray with me. Father, you have been with us as we've gathered together to worship you. You have been faithful, fed us, cared for us, reminded us of who we are in the gospel. Father, we are grateful that we have been brought to this place that we might worship you together. Holy Spirit, would you work through this worship service? Would you work through the words of my mouth? That they would actually be the words of our Holy Father that he has for us in Scripture. Please do this, Spirit. In the name of our Jesus, amen. Malachi chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Remember, this is the, this is the fourth debate that the people bring before God. 2.17 You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of our Lord. And I would say this, that this is actually a very dangerous passage, perhaps 
the most dangerous passage that we've seen thus far in Malachi. But as I continue to reflect on this passage, I'm awestruck by how the danger is made approachable. The people, of course, enter into a debate with God just as they have in the past. They come to Him with a question, and as in the past, they expect Him to gratify their question with an answer, to dialogue with them. But God doesn't. He hears their question, but He refuses to give that question any dignity. They ask their question, and God essentially says to them, I will make sure that that question never gets asked again. God replies not really with an answer, but rather with a stern reminder of who they're dealing with. He will not entertain their question. And there will come a time, he says, when no human being would ever dare to ask such a question. He says to them, my actions will one day obliterate that question. It's a dangerous passage. There's nothing playful about this debate in which they engage with God. This, their fourth. If you look at verse 17, you read that the people of Jerusalem have wearied the Lord with their words. To weary God, what's that like? Well, to weary God, it would seem, is to tire Him out. It's to exhaust Him from so much toil, so much hard work. You know, and it feels blasphemous even to suppose that God could become so tired that He can barely get Himself to carry on. What we suspect about God is that we, in fact, can read about Him in Isaiah 40. Listen to Isaiah 40 in which the same word, wearied, shows up. This is verse 28 of Isaiah 40. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Clearly, God's not wearied because He's hit the very limit of His energy. There's something else going on here. And in the beginning of our passage, we have somewhat of an answer as to what's going on because verse 17, uh, God says to the people that they have wearied Him with their words. He is uh, tired from listening to them. And what's their response to that? They offer more words. How have we wearied you? That's their response. How have we wearied you? This is the incessant whining of a hard-headed child who refuses to listen. They continue to turn over the same story in their heads over and over again. Uh, Their own alter sense of reality. They refuse to believe you when you tell them that they have everything wrong and they need to sit down, stop talking, and listen. There's a rather funny picture of this in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 15, where we read uh, about a fool. And this is a fool who's wearying himself as he's uh, trying to find a city. It's uh, perhaps a picture of a traveling fool, but he never makes it to the city. It's as if he has a map, but it's upside down or backwards, or it's a map for the wrong country. And he refuses to listen to anyone who would tell him he doesn't know where he's going. And Ecclesiastes 10.15 says, This man who is a fool is wearied in his foolishness, and he will toil for all eternity and never reach that city. It's an interesting parallel about weariness. 
The only other time in Scripture where we read about God being wearied in this way is from Isaiah 43. If you're writing this down, it's it's Isaiah 43, verse 24. The people refuse to honor God in their worship, and he says this to them. He says, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Their sins are too much for God in the sense that he has called them to actually enjoy his presence, to be with him, to delight in him. He's provided all the means necessary for them to do so, but they refuse to meet him according to his terms. And God says, you've wearied me with your iniquities. He's reached out to them, and they've refused to come to him on his terms. And so this debate has to do with nodding your head to God as if you agree with everything that he says, everything that he does, and with a dreamy expression on your face, you look up to heaven and you nod approvingly, and then you turn your back and you do whatever you're going to do anyway. This person can agree with God when he says that God hates evil and he loves that which is good, but they turn around and they live their life as if the very opposite is true. They know God's opinions. How do they know God's opinions? Because they have lived in his midst for centuries, or rather, he has lived in their midst for centuries. They have heard him speak his opinion to them because he has been close to them. And that's how they know. But they have the audacity to turn and say to others with their lives and with their speech that what you think that God hates is actually good to him. He delights in it. And what you think that God wants, you're mistaken. He doesn't really want any of that at all. And so the passage is not chiefly about how they weary God. It's about the way in which God proves himself to be true. It's about the way in which God proves himself to be true, as if he needed to do that. But he will once and for all authenticate himself in such a way that it will never be questioned. We can play games with him all we want, but he will make himself known for who he is. And what Malachi says to the people in this passage is he says that God will do this not once, but he'll do it twice. He'll make himself known. He will justify himself not once, but twice. He's going to do it in the gospel of grace, as it's proclaimed by John the Baptist and offered by Jesus. And he'll do it also in the second coming of his only begotten son. He'll justify himself not once, but twice. But what Malachi wants the people to understand is that God alone will justify himself. There's a sense in which the questioning is run up against a brick wall. He alone will justify himself. Well, he justifies himself in the gospel. I've deliberately chosen this word because of its theological importance, even though justification doesn't actually appear in our passage this morning. Ordinarily, when we talk about justification, we talk about how we are justified before God. It's a, it's a word that comes from the scene of a courtroom. And theologians discuss how it is that God is able to, as a judge, judge us in such a way that he calls us innocent, even though we're marked by Adam's sin and, quite frankly, we continue to sin. How on earth can he call me innocent without himself becoming a corrupt judge for not properly dealing with my crimes? The Bible teaches that a Christian is judged innocent by God, not because they're actually innocent, because they're not, 
And not because God is a sloppy judge, because He's perfect. Christian justification is an act of His free grace. It's an act in which He pardons us of our sins, an act in which He accepts us as righteous in His sight, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ that has been accounted to us and received by faith alone. Now, you may recognize, I hope you recognize, I'm loosely quoting a confessional statement here, but you get the point. I'm declared innocent before God, not because of my righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness that has been accounted to me or imputed to me. God looks at me, but he sees Jesus. And if I'm justified by God's grace, a question might follow, how then is he justified? How is he shown to be innocent? And that's what the passage is about. It's about God answering that question proving how he himself can be found to be righteous. And the first way he proves his righteousness is in the good news of the gospel. More specifically, he is going to send not one but two men to enter space and time and defend God in a very particular way. Not one man, but two men. And it's important that these men enter our world because the people of Jerusalem right now have only a tattered picture of God's rule over them. I want you to imagine for a moment Malachi's audience. Imagine them sitting back and reflecting upon what life must have been like in the era of King Solomon's time. When King Solomon was the king, the city of Jerusalem had nice, thick walls. During King Solomon's time, there were royal guests coming to the city all the time, and they were coming to pay tribute to the nation. During King Solomon's time, the nearest enemy is well beyond the borders. Everyone feels safe. And during King Solomon's time, there was plenty of money. There were crops in the ground. And there was a glittering temple with large, regular attendants. How how it must have been for Malachi's audience to sit back and reflect on those days. Hmm. I bet that there are many here who long for a time like that themselves. Malachi's audience would have longed for those days, pined for those days, thinking to themselves that it would have been far easier to worship God then. There was a majesty, a presence then, and it would have been easier to worship Him then, to be sure. It seems hard in the present. It seems almost like a waste of time to worship Him now. That's how the people of Jerusalem feel as Malachi is preaching to them. But there are many here in this room who feel exactly the same way. It would have been far easier to worship God if it was back then. But in our passage, God does not say that He is going to bring those good days back. He doesn't, he doesn't make that promise in this passage. He doesn't say that there will come a time when I bring all of those good days back and then you'll love to worship me. He says this. He says that He Himself will actually enter into their bad days. He will come and enter into those ominous times. He will come with two feet, walk in their times. He'll teach in their era. And He says that this is going to happen in the form of Not one man, but two men. They will come. They will come. The first man is called in verse 1, simply my messenger. You see that in Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
This uh, messenger, if you turn forward in Malachi, is referred to again in Malachi 4, verse 5, when God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's Malachi 4, 5. And 3, 1 and 4, 5 are paired together. Uh, Elijah, of course, ministered over 400 years ago. In fact, the people that are sitting at Malachi's feet, if they're indeed sitting at Malachi's feet listening to him preach, uh, those people uh, would know that Elijah ministered some 400 years ago. To say nothing else at all about uh, Malachi's audience, they would also know that Elijah ministered in a very difficult time. Elijah didn't minister in the time of King Solomon. Elijah ministered after the death of King Solomon and after the Civil War split the country in two. And from the beginning of his ministry, he was harassed by King Ahab. He spent most of his time actually running for his life. Elijah spent his whole life trying to prove to the stubborn people that God was greater than their favorite God at the time, Baal. Elijah was himself in his body. He was a man used by God to actually bring justification to God. Elijah is the great defense attorney for God. Do you hear that? Elijah is the great defense attorney for God, proving himself through Elijah that he is the true God and Baal is not. The people of Jerusalem, they would have been prepared for this messenger. Even as they're listening to Malachi preach, they would have been prepared for this messenger. Isaiah 40 verse 3, verses 3 and 4 says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. They would have had Isaiah. They would have known this. The story would have been told to them even before Malachi begins to preach about this messenger. But as we know, Jesus refers several times to this prophet who was called a messenger in 3.1 and Elijah in 4.5, telling us that this man is none other than John the Baptist. John the Baptist can be understood as suddenly coming into the temple in the form of his father who is greeted in the Holy of Holies by an angel and told, that his barren wife would have a child. John the Baptist himself was circumcised in the temple where his father miraculously returns to him and where John gets his name, there in the temple. John the Baptist is the one whom God sends to prepare the Jewish people in particular for his most clear self-justification yet, and that's the second man. You hear that first man, that's the messenger, that's John the Baptist. But there's another man in this passage, and it's very important to discern this second man. We find him also in 3.1. This man is called not simply a messenger, but a messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. I suspect that delight there is not a sincere delight. That's the second man. He's a messenger of the covenant. And it's very important to discern a few things about this messenger of the covenant. It's uh, shocking to many that there is a second man who enters into this passage at all. But first, this messenger of the covenant is a messenger. He is there to bring news, good news, in fact. Jesus says over and over again that he has come to bring the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. He is a man who bears an expected message. Isn't this what the gospel is? The good news. 
So first, this, this uh, messenger of the covenant, he's bringing a message. But second, this messenger of the covenant seems to be attached to something. He's attached to this covenant, meaning that his message involves brokering some pre-written agreement or deal. A, a covenant is like a contract in this regard. Jesus doesn't come to freelance. That should be music to your ears, that Jesus doesn't come to freelance. We read that in John 5. He doesn't come to work independently, but to rather ratify an existing arrangement. It's so easy for us to separate Jesus from the purposes of God in the Old Testament. To think that Jesus comes, why? To turn the Old Testament on its head by offering an alternative way to be saved. That is not what we believe here. Jesus doesn't come to turn the Old Testament on its head. Jesus comes to actually carry forward God's ministry of grace to his people. Malachi's audience is called to worship God by trusting in his care, not to trust in the care of a Jewish nation, not to trust in the care of their own personal piety, and not to trust in the care of Persian supremacy. None of these things can be grounds for our trust in God. To say that Jesus satisfies a pre-existing covenant is to say that he's the one who fulfills all of God's promises in the Old Testament. He is the one who fulfills all of God's promises in the Old Testament, going all the way back to that first articulation of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3, 15, where God promises to Adam and Eve that he will one day crush Satan's head. That was a promise that God made. That was a gracious promise. Jesus fulfills that promise. And God's promise to be their God, God's promise to make a people for himself, God's promise to be with them for all eternity, God's promise to be a blessing to the world through them, God's promise to inhabit the new Jerusalem with them forever. All of these promises are fulfilled in the covenant-keeping messenger, the messenger of the covenant. Jesus doesn't come to overturn the Old Testament. Jesus comes to fulfill every promise made in the Old Testament about God's grace. This second person, this second man, is a messenger who bears a a message, but he is also a messenger of a covenant. He satisfies a purpose, but there's one other thing that you need to know about this second man. Malachi says that the messenger of the covenant is going to be a priest. Notice how Jesus will exert his influence over the priest in a special way. You you can read in verse 3 that this messenger of the covenant, well, he will purify the sons of Levi and he'll refine them like gold and silver. To hear this ought to be very, very shocking that even the priests are going to be refined, purified, that even the priests would be unclean. This would be very shocking. Jesus is going to be the messenger that outpriests the priests. He outpriests the priests. The letters of the Hebrews in the New Testament is filled with pictures of the priestly work of Jesus and that his priestly work is far superior to the entire priestly work of the Levites, the Levites. And not only will he take our pitiful offerings and purify them to make them useful to God, he actually is going to offer his own blood on that altar. This messenger of the covenant is going to outpriest the priest by pouring out his own blood on that altar. This is, this is the second messenger. Jesus is a messenger, Jesus fulfills a covenant, and Jesus is a better priest. We think that the gospel is merely something to be believed, but the gospel is God's means of justifying himself to people who weary him. God, through John the Baptist and then through Jesus, says to the world once and for all, this is how I operate. 
This is who I am. This is how I operate. This is God's self-justification. Jesus of Nazareth, his only begotten son, not only the preacher of a message, but the fulfiller of a covenant and the priestly duties of a perfectly righteous priest. This is the point of Malachi. God doesn't debate with his people. God says, I will send Jesus, and he will be my self-justification. So God justifies himself, not one way, but two ways, remember. He, he justifies himself in the gospel of grace as it's administered through John the Baptist and our Lord and Savior, but he also justifies himself in his second coming. And in verse 5, we come across a very terrible statement. He says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. There will be one other occasion, a day, on which God will ultimately justify himself. He will one day refuse to be wearied by us any longer. Refuse to be wearied by us any longer. He offered himself to the people over and over again throughout the Old Testament, through all of the promises, through a family line, through redemption from Egypt, through nationhood, through ceremonial practices, through prophets, and through a written word. He has ministered to his people. He has cared for his people. And some people actually trusted God. They placed their faith in him, and it was accounted to them as righteous. And even many strangers trusted God. If you look at the list of King David's inner circle, there is a remarkably large number of people there who come from other nations. It would seem that God had already begun to be a blessing to the nations in the promises that he made to his people. And then God offered himself through his son so that all who come to him in faith, who trust in him, will have God's eternal presence. And many have, many have, but many have not. And those who deny Jesus have denied every self-justification of God as far back as his words of promise spoken to Adam and Eve in the garden. To deny Jesus is to deny every promise that God has made. To deny Jesus is to deny every self-justification of God. To deny him is to deny God himself. And this hard-hearted denial is wearisome to God but he's not going to be weary for all eternity. He will come, and he will judge the world, and he'll do it publicly, we're told here. We shouldn't read verse 5 as an exhaustive list of all the sins which God will judge. We certainly should notice, though, that God's judgment, it includes charges that even a child could understand. It's not as if God is finding judgment with some kind of uh, spiritual level that we've not achieved, as if we could go to God in the final day when Jesus comes and we can say, whoa, 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 I didn't know that's what you meant by that. I didn't know that's what you meant. Look at the charges of verse 5. They're very clear. Even a child could understand these. It isn't some theological nuance that's at stake. God judges us for real sins. And we should take note that these are sins particularly relevant to the people of Jerusalem and Malachi's era. Remember at the very beginning of our passage, what are they known for? They're known for calling evil things good in God's eyes. They're justifying their evil, and they're saying these things are actually good to God. Can you imagine a people publicly practicing these things and justifying them as being good in God's eyes? Can you imagine someone justifying their adultery? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone justifying lying and dragging another person's name through the mud? Could you imagine someone justifying that? Could you imagine someone justifying the oppression of workers who are not financially vested in the business, employees? Could you imagine justifying the oppression of women who have no earthly care? 
Can you imagine someone who would justify taking advantage of people who are fatherless and therefore have no inheritance in the world? Could you imagine justifying those who have absolutely no regard for sojourners or exiles? Can you imagine that? They're justifying these things before others, saying that this is God's will, this is what he delights in. The people of Jerusalem in Malachi's era were justifying these actions, and they were wearying God. But I'm sure none of these things happen today, right? None of them. They're wearying God. But notice in verse 5 that that's that's not the root of the problem. Those actions, that's not the root of the problem. The root of the problem is not simply that they weary God as huge as a matter as that is. It's not the core of his judgment. And the root of the problem is not that even they commit these sins as vicious as they are. Look what Malachi tells us. Look what God tells us through his Holy Spirit. The root is this, that they refuse to fear God. That they refuse to fear God. And this is the great warning in God's self-justification in his gospel. This is the great warning that judgment comes because we refuse to fear him. But it's also the great object of the gospel, and I want you to listen to this clearly. The gospel tells us exactly what it looks like to fear the Lord. The gospel tells us that. What does it look like to fear the Lord? To properly fear the Lord is not a a new ethic. It's not a new attitude. It's nothing short of falling before Jesus and trusting him. That's what it looks like to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is to worship Jesus. That's the message of John the Baptist. That's why he came to prepare a people by showing their sins and pointing them to Jesus. That's what John the Baptist does. Shows them their sins and he points to Jesus. It's Jesus himself who's that new ethic, who's that new attitude. He's our all in all. He's the very heart of the gospel. He is the heart of God's self-justification. He is the very fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. And he is the priest of all priests the priest of all priests. To not weary God is to trust this one. To not weary God is to trust God's sole justifying agent, Jesus Christ. That's how God justifies himself. And to fear this God is to trust this Jesus. That's the gospel. God has justified himself. Come to him in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together and then baptize. Father, thank you. Thank you for making yourself known through Jesus. Thank you for giving an opportunity to hear the gospel of grace. Would you send us into the world not with a gospel of self, with our lives or with our words, but with that gospel of grace? Would you show us, teach us how to hold forth Jesus? He is how you have justified yourself. Jesus, thanks for being with us as we uh, gather to worship you. Uh, Be with us as we uh, now uh, baptize uh, Linnea and life. In your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.